good. Well, let me uh, add my welcome to the welcome you've already been given. It's lovely to see you. Uh, as we come to our last study in the book of Joshua, and uh, next Sunday morning, uh, Corne Blau will be with us, and he's going to be preaching to us from the book of Acts and answering the question, why did Christ die? So Corne's uh, always welcome, and it's lovely to have him. Do please be praying for that. But first, let's, uh, let me pray as we come to this last study. Won't you bow with me? Well, Heavenly Father, we've been uh, thinking this past week in our studies at uh, the College in the Reformation about how wonderful it is to have the Bible in a language we can understand. And we thank you for that, Lord. We don't take it for granted. Help us, Lord, to apply our minds diligently to understanding its truth and change our hearts to live in obedience. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, do please keep the uh, bulletin open in front of you with an outline of where we're going together in the next few minutes. Now, cast your mind back. If you remember, we started our series in Joshua back in April. Um, It was actually just a few weeks after Angus Buchan's famous prayer meeting. Uh, What a remarkable event it was. More than a million people, uh, some of them travelling vast distances, uh, gathered to ask God to rescue South Africa from all her problems. Uh, Corrupt government, poverty, crime, drought and many more. It was a terrific event and uh, I for one thank God for Angus Buck and I'm sure you do too. But sadly, six months later, we have to say that all those problems are still with us. Uh, Of course, it's not all doom and gloom as those of us who were at Artscape Last night can testify there's plenty of good things happening in the country, but as far as those problems are concerned, there are no obvious signs of any change. Now, I think that's because while we often tend to focus on problems we can see, we sometimes forget that the real battle is not visible, it's spiritual. Actually, to be more precise, the real battle, I want to suggest, is inside the churches. Um, Contrary to what most people think, the real battle is not actually out there. Those are just symptoms of something more serious. The real problem is that many Christians are worshipping an idol. You see, I think we've made God into what we would like him to be. We've allowed our knowledge of God to be shaped by the culture rather than the Bible. So, for example, listen to the musician Elton John in an interview with a popular magazine. He was asked about Jesus and he said this, quote, I think Jesus was a compassionate super-intelligent gay man who understood human problems. End quote. Now, of course, you could find any number of famous people who would say something equally stupid. But uh, the problem is that their voices are loud and their opinions are largely unchallenged. 
And so if famous and influential people say things like that and the church keeps quiet, it's hardly surprising, is it, if a distorted view of God eventually creeps into the churches by the back door. Now, friends, that, I think, is the real battle. Too many Christians are worshipping a God who doesn't actually exist. He's an idol of their imagination. He's a God who doesn't care about our ignorance or our complacency, and he just winks at our disobedience. I want to suggest that there won't be any lasting progress with the problems that were prayed about on Angus Buchan's prayer retreat until all the churches come back to the God of the Bible. And so for our last study in this series, I thought it would be good to take one step back in order to get the big picture of the book of Joshua clear in our minds, to remind ourselves of what we've learned about God and to underline the really important lessons we've discovered about living the Christian life today. Now, you may remember a couple of weeks ago that we referred to Hudson Taylor's observation that in any undertaking for God, there are three stages. The first was impossible, the second was difficult, the third, done. Impossible, difficult, done. And one way of dividing up the book of Joshua is by those three stages. So the first five chapters of the book are all about how impossible Israel's mission seemed to be at the time. There the Israelites are, poised on the border of Canaan, ready to enter the land, but there are several impossible obstacles to overcome. You remember in chapter 3 we saw that the Jordan was in flood. It looked like it was going to be impossible for that multitude to cross over. Then in chapters 5 and 6, the city of Jericho, with its mighty walls and its well-trained army, couldn't possibly be taken by human power alone. And again and again, through the opening chapters of the book, we're reminded how impossible it seemed for that inexperienced nomadic nation to conquer a land whose people were vastly better resourced and far more experienced in warfare. Then in chapters 6 to 12, you have the second stage in Hudson Taylor's model. This was when it was difficult. Uh, for a start, there was the obedience that they needed in order to follow God's rather curious plan for taking the city of Jericho by walking round it. There was the setback uh, with Achan. There was the first defeat at Ai. There was the deception of the Gibeonites. And then there was that extraordinary battle when all the kings of the Amorites joined together to fight against Israel. In fact, the opposition was so intense, you remember that the Lord had to intervene with hailstones and stopping the sun in the sky. It was all really rather difficult. And then the remaining chapters, from chapter 13 to the end of the book, are really a review of what God had done. What he did for Israel. 
and the consequences that flowed from it. You remember the dividing up of the land amongst the tribes and the making of the covenant that we looked at last Sunday morning. So that's a very brief overview of the whole book of Joshua, but I do hope that we've all got it clear in our minds. Because one of the advantages of studying the Bible like this, looking at consecutive passages week after week, is that we don't just think to ourselves, oh yes, there is a verse in Joshua that I used to know, now where on earth is it? Rather, what we need is a clear picture in our minds of what the whole book is about, so that we can return to it both for our own benefit and so that we can share it competently with others. So with that in mind, uh, let's underline three outstanding themes from the book. Themes that are just as important for you and me today as they were back then. And the first is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. You see, if we were to ask what is the greatest theme of the book, this must surely be it. The book is all about God keeping his word. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. Uh, Over the years, God had said again and again that the descendants of Abraham would return to the land and make it their own. And the book of Joshua is telling us how that happened. And it shows us that God is 100% dependable. That is the greatest truth of the book. The other side of that is equally important because God speaks and makes promises before he acts. And so his word not only commits him, but also confirms that when these extraordinary things eventually happen, it is by God's word. And you see, the lesson here is that the word of the living God prevails over all human factors. I want to ask you this morning, have you really grasped that deep down in your life? The word of the living God prevails over all human factors, whether they're factors of background or personal circumstances or all the pressures that are part of normal life, the word of God prevails. Because God is greater than our circumstances, he's greater than our background, greater than our abilities and our weaknesses. Why? Well, because he's our creator. And one of the greatest steps, one of the greatest steps forward that any of us can make in living the Christian life is when it really grips us deep down in our hearts that this is true, that God's word will prevail. He will keep his promises. Let me remind you of one or two verses just to prove the point. Uh, Look with me, for example, at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord... 
The Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. Now what difference did the death of Moses make? Well, you see, it was the end of an era, wasn't it? Moses had led the people through the wilderness for 40 years and immediately Moses dies, God says, now I'm ready for the next phase. And we would have understood it, wouldn't we, if the Israelites had said at that point, what now, Lord? I mean, it's a rather strange time to be doing this. We've got this new man in charge. He's barely got his feet under the desk. We don't know what sort of leader he's going to turn out to be. Can't we wait for a bit? But God says, now is the time to move forward. God says it. The word of the Lord prevails over all human factors. And uh, as some of you may have been taught in your youth, uh, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. And I want to say to you this morning that if you live your Christian life like that, you will enter into the experience of God keeping his word in your life. But all the time we don't believe his word, we stay outside of his promises and their fulfilment. And so Joshua is asking us this morning, are we really trusting the Lord? If God has laid something on your heart through Holy Scripture, if God is saying to you, go and do this for me, then are you going to trust him? Or are you saying, Lord, um, I don't think this is quite the right time. I'll get back to you on it a bit later. Joshua believed that God is faithful. And as the book goes on, we see that the word of this faithful God isn't only something for his people to rely on, though it is that, rather his word is the main weapon that he uses in pressing forward and fulfilling his promises. That's why in the New Testament, the word of God is called the sword of the Spirit. The word of God is the weapon that the Holy Spirit uses to accomplish the purposes of God in the lives of his people. So just turn on with me to chapter 2 and verse 9, page 156. Chapter 2, verse 9, page 156, the left-hand column. Now you remember, of course, the story of Rahab and what she said to the spies. Uh, There they were, hiding from their pursuers on the roof of Rahab's house. And in verse 9, Rahab says to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og 
the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So you see, this impossible fortress of Jericho was already defeated before they even began to walk around the city walls. And the reason was that the truth of who God is and what God had done had already got into Jericho. The word of the Lord was the weapon he used. And you see, it's teaching us, isn't it, that when the word of God penetrates a stronghold like Jericho, it is overthrown. Now, friends, you see, that is why in evangelism it's never enough simply to share our experience. If we want God to break down barriers and walls in the lives of people who don't yet know him, the only way that is going to happen is by the word of God penetrating their lives. That's why it's so very important, isn't it, that people should read the Gospels. It's why we need them to hear preaching that is truly biblical. Because it is the word of God that has the power to break down the walls of a Jericho or of a stubborn human heart. Look with me, if you will, at chapter 5 and verse 1, just a little bit further on in the book. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we'd crossed over. Their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Do you see? Again and again, exactly the same principle. When the news of who God is and what God is doing gets out, the opposition collapses before any battle is actually fought. God's word is the sharpest weapon of all, sharper than any two-edged sword. And you see, it's because Joshua lived by that word that he became the great conqueror of Canaan under God. You see, the story of Joshua is the story of a man who took God at his word. He consciously associated himself with his promises. And so at every stage, he sought to discover God's will and then he set about doing it. Yes, there were a couple of occasions when he didn't do that. Uh, Once at Ai and again with the Gibeonites. And that's because Joshua was human like you and like me and he sometimes made mistakes. But we should learn from the fact that because he failed to discover the will of God on those two occasions, he was unable to be victorious. And you see, friends, that's because 
The faithfulness of God is rooted in his word. Now, there is a really important Bible principle here. This is the most important thing I'm going to say this morning, so please listen to this. The principle is, if you don't know his word, you will not prove his faithfulness. And you see, that may be the reason why some of us are perhaps not as strong spiritually as we could be. That perhaps sometimes we're rather wobbly in our Christian walk, easily blown off course. The reason is because we don't actually really know the Word of God. And so we have no promises to claim and therefore we have no faithfulness to call upon. Well, the Word of God is the divinely given weapon for advance in our own spiritual lives, in the life of our church, and in evangelism. And Jericho fell, you see, not because Joshua was a brilliant military strategist. Jericho fell because Joshua carried out the instructions of God to the letter. If you do not know his word, you will not prove his faithfulness. And that's why, you see, your personal Bible study isn't just an intellectual exercise. It isn't something that we do just because somebody said to us years ago that it's a good idea for Christians to do it. No, it is the essential ingredient for our Christian growth. That's why St. Barnabas is a Bible-teaching church. It's because we know that our experience of God's faithfulness depends upon us rightly valuing his word. Let's look at just one more example to make sure we really have got hold of this. Turn with me to chapter 21, verse 43, page 170, left-hand column. Chapter 21, verse 43, page 170. Left-hand column. Marvellous verses. We didn't actually cover this text in the series, so it's good to look at it now. Verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. And uh, every Christian who is believing the word of God and who is living the word of God will surely say amen to that. Thank you. Not one of God's promises has failed. Every one has been fulfilled. Now, friends, if we don't have the experience of the faithfulness of God in our own lives, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it can only be 
because we don't really know his word. We aren't finding the promises and we aren't claiming them. That, I think, is the greatest lesson from the book of Joshua. The faithfulness of God. But there are two other things that we can look at more quickly. So come back to chapter 1 because the second thing that we can learn from the book of Joshua is the necessity of obedience. The necessity of obedience. You see, this is how the faithfulness of God becomes operative in our lives. And it's important to remember that this was the hallmark of Joshua's own personal life. It was the secret of his strength. Did you notice uh, in chapter 1, I'm sure you did, how much Joshua needed to be encouraged? God said it to him three times. Once in verse 6, be strong and courageous. Again in verse 7, be strong and very courageous. And a third time in verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. And chapter 1 ends in verse 18 with the people saying to Joshua, be strong and courageous. And you might remember from our very first study in the book that the reason that they were saying this was because everybody could see that Joshua's knees were knocking. And yet, and yet, this was the man that God made into a great conqueror. Possibly the greatest conqueror in the Old Testament apart from David. How did God turn someone like that? Somebody who obviously needed to be pushed and motivated every single day. How did God turn him into a victorious conqueror? Well, the rest of the book reveals that the secret was Joshua's detailed obedience. And that obedience was the result of his faith. In the Bible, you can't separate those two things. Faith, obedience is one word. And that means that Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 is the key verse. Verse 8, have a look at it. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you might be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Now I don't know if you're into the habit of underlining important words in your Bible but if you are, can I please urge you to underline the word then? Because that is the key word in verse 8. The word then. You see, there's no substitute for meditating on the word of God and doing everything written in it. When you meditate on the word of God and you do what it says, then you will be prosperous and successful. And obviously that doesn't mean that you're going to be appointed as the managing director and get a million rand bonus at Christmas. It doesn't mean that. Now let's get it clear in our minds that it means you will be prosperous spiritually. And God wants Christians 
to be spiritually prosperous. That's what he wants for you. He doesn't want uh, lots of Christians struggling and getting dragged along by our Christian friends. No, God wants Christians whose lives overflow with love and joy and peace and the fruit of the Spirit because they're following the word of God in detail. So the pattern is crystal clear, isn't it? Meditate on it, do it, then you will be prosperous. The necessity of obedience. And throughout his life, um, Joshua, of course, passed on the word of God to others. Uh, So in verse 9 in chapter 1, God encourages Joshua. And then immediately in the next verse, verse 10, we find Joshua going to encourage all the people. Now, friends, you see, if you and I want to have any ministry for God in this world worthy of talking about, we will have nothing to offer unless we ourselves are meditating and doing everything that God is teaching us in his word. We've got to work at his commands. We've got to obey them fully. Then you will be prosperous and successful. But of course, like us, um, we have to remember that Joshua also had his failures. I mentioned one a moment ago when Israel rushed up to Ai without first asking God about it. And because there was a sin hidden in the camp, Achan had taken some of the devoted things that should have been given to God. Because of that, disaster followed. Then again in chapter 9, Joshua made this treaty, didn't he, with the Gibeonites, believing them to be um, from a far distant country. And actually they were practically next door neighbours. But Joshua didn't consult God about it and uh, he had to live with the consequences. But I mention that because it's very interesting that in both chapters we saw how sin and failure can be overruled by God and used for good. And that's a very comforting reminder for us, isn't it, that there are no dead ends with God. You know, if we will only confess our sin and rebellion and ask God to use us in spite of those things, well, God can actually use them for good. But the principle is that the road to holiness is obedience. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now Joshua, of course, had to learn that. And uh, the nation had to learn it. They also had to learn that if they wanted to see God do amazing things amongst them, there had to be, do you remember this, wholehearted consecration. I wonder if you remember that. Chapter 3, verse 5, page 156, right-hand column. Joshua said to the people, um, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord 
will do amazing things among you. And that, of course, was a reference, wasn't it, to the miraculous crossing of the Jordan. But in order to experience that, they first of all had to consecrate themselves. And you may remember we said, as we looked at chapter 3, that consecration means setting apart the whole of our lives for God's exclusive use. If there's no consecration, we won't see God doing amazing things among us. You find that message repeated, chapter 7, verse 13, page 159, left-hand column. Chapter 7, verse 13. But there's a very specific and important application here. Verse 13. Consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. That which is devoted is among you, O Israel. And here's the application. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. See, consecration comes before conquest in the Christian life. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why the church has lost its voice in public life. And in our own lives, if we aren't seeing the victories that we say that we want, maybe that's the reason. Maybe we're actually reluctant to set apart all of our lives for God's exclusive use. Friends, God requires practical, down-to-earth holiness. And that's not a mystical experience. Um, It's not a secret deal between you and God after uh, a Bible conference or a weekend with Angus. No, it is daily, detailed obedience to God. That's what God is looking for. And if we're not as effective as we would like to be as Christians, maybe that's the reason. A couple of weeks ago we saw, didn't we, that this means getting rid of any idols in our lives, anything that might be, we might be allowing to squeeze God out of first place. The principle is there is no progress without obedience. And so we need to ask ourselves, are there areas in my life where I'm holding out against God? If I put my entire life under the microscope of God's word, what would I actually see? Would I see obedience in the details? I mean, it would be tragic, friends, wouldn't it, not to explore the full potential of what God has purposed for you because we fail to obey God in detail. That would be a tragic waste of a life, wouldn't it? The faithfulness of God, the necessity of obedience... And thirdly, and very briefly, the certainty of victory. 
the certainty of victory. This is actually what the book of Joshua is all about, isn't it? The very name, Joshua, means Yahweh is salvation. The New Testament form of Joshua is, of course, Jesus, and his name means he saves. So, you see, this is what salvation is all about. It's it's about God bringing his people into the place that he has promised. That's what salvation is. So finally, come back to that remarkable passage in chapter 5 and verse 13, page 158. It's our last uh, verse reference. Do have a look at it. Chapter 5, verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, literally no in the original. No, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? You see, the key to the victory was that Joshua realised that he wasn't actually the commander at all. God was the commander. And when God is the commander, the victory is certain. Canaan wasn't conquered by careful strategy. Canaan wasn't conquered by military power. Canaan wasn't even, it wasn't actually even conquered by prayer and fasting. Canaan was conquered by God's power, God's promises, and God's presence with his people. God was the conqueror. Everything else was secondary to that. And exactly the same is true in our own Christian lives. The victories that you and I might experience over our enemies are only ever won by God alone. Only he can win them for us. But some of us don't like that. Uh, We don't like to think that there's nothing that we can do for God. And we forget, don't we, that the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, without me, you can do nothing. And Jesus, can I suggest, is still saying that to you and me this morning. And sometimes, you see, we don't enjoy the victories we want because we refuse to humble ourselves and to allow Jesus to be the commander in our lives. But when you do kneel before the Lord Jesus as your Saviour and you submit to him as your Lord, and when you claim the forgiveness that comes with his sacrifice at Calvary and the power of the Holy Spirit to change your life, well then the way is open for victory. But if we try to do it our way, then all our planning and our praying And all our energy 
and all of our effort, it'll get us nowhere. Because only God can give us the victory. And that's the message of Joshua. Victory is certain when the Lord is at work. One writer captures this very brilliantly and I close with this, quote, All Christians have eternal life, but not all Christians have abundant life. There can be life without health, movement without progress, war but defeat. We may serve but never succeed. We may try but never triumph. And the difference is in experiencing life abundant. The abundant life is simply the fullness of life in Jesus Christ made possible by his death and resurrection and made real by the incoming of his Holy Spirit. So our motto for living the Christian life should be I can't, but he can. My hands off, his hands on. That was Joshua's secret. Let it be ours also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we want to praise you for this book and for the marvellous encouragements it's given to us. We've only begun to scratch the surface, really, but we pray that our weakness would not get in the way of us grasping more clearly the purity and truth of your word. Take away the thoughts of mere men and write your word more deeply in our minds and on our hearts. We confess that like Joshua, we are so often negligent and disobedient. We don't believe the promises as we should. Lord, forgive us and deal with our unbelief. Cleanse us from the sins of disobedience and faithlessness. And Father, pour such new strength into us by your Holy Spirit that we may live the abundant life that Jesus Christ came to bring. Thank you that in him there are resources to cope and that in coping in Christ we shall ultimately conquer because he will bring us through all the pressures and the problems into the land that he has prepared, the promised land. Lord, some of us this morning are feeling acutely under pressure. 
Our lives are full of problems and anything like conquests and victories, well, they seem to be a million miles away. Help us, we pray, not to be discouraged but to begin right where we are and to trust you for what we can and to walk a step at a time finding our faith strengthened and our hope increased. And so now we have a moment of quiet as we pray personally for whatever lessons you have taught us from this book and we ask you to work them out in our lives. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.